1: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Healthy Her and we have a really cool topic we're going to talk about today, something that we really haven't touched on at all in a prior podcast and we're going to talk about fertility and what you need to know about your fertility or if you're in that uh, group of patients that have had issues um, with fertility. So we have a special doctor today um, from California. Her name is Dr. Carolina Sweldo. So welcome, Dr. Sweldo.
2: Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Um, this is obviously something that I'm passionate about. This is my life's work. And so I'm really excited to be here with you today and and hopefully share share some nuggets and some information. Um, so I am a board certified OBGYN and fertility specialist, and a lot of people don't know what that means. So I'll briefly say after medical school, we have to do our training in whatever specialty. So we do four years of OBGYN. I then went on and did an additional training. So I did three more years um, specifically dedicated to all things hormone and, and reproduction. Um, I became board certified. So there's a series of written and oral examinations you have to take. And I have now been in practice for almost seven years. Um, So I've spoken both at the national level. um, ASRM is the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. That is our governing body. And I've also been invited, thankfully, to speak on the international stage. I have many ties to um, my parents home country of Argentina and have been invited to give talks throughout South America. So I'm currently living in central california um but i'm an avid traveler with my
1: husband and my two kiddos yeah what an impressive resume yeah <laughs> um, thank you thank you um so what kind of patients do you see in your practice most people most women have been to a regular ob gin and go for pap smears when they do get pregnant bleeding issues, uh, contraception discussions, menopause management. And that's pretty bread and butter what people would typically see their general OBGYN for. But you, you did that training, but then went on to specialize in reproductive endocrinology. So what type of patients are you seeing in your practice?
2: yes that's a great question so the the bulk of patients that i see the vast majority are seeking pregnancy so infertility does occupy a majority of my practice um, those patients a lot of times have been referred by their OBGYN or their primary care provider but many times have also just found us on their own and sought out a consultation. So I think one important takeaway is you do not necessarily need a referral to see a fertility specialist. Um, but fertility is not our only uh, the only thing in our wheelhouse. We also deal with all things hormones, as I said initially. So if you're having irregular cycles, um, you know some patients are skipping months and months, that would also be one reason to see a fertility a hormone specialist or a reproductive endocrinologist. Um, if you have very painful periods, you know, I think we're getting better as a specialty of acknowledging that very painful periods are not normal. Um, but I think there was, you know, very much this notion of, oh, just power through. Oh, just it is what it is. And what we realize now is that many of those women were actually suffering from a medical disease called endometriosis. Um, So I think there's a lot of other conditions outside of fertility where a REI or reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist may be useful to a patient.
1: When would somebody when would a patient need to see a fertility you said you don't need a referral so when does a patient need to see a we're recommended to see a fertility doctor like yourself compared to their regular OBGYN? now i personally don't do any infertility anymore i did i just don't feel like i can do as good of a job as somebody like yourself and so i stopped doing any infertility but early on in my career i did some but I think maybe you can answer this because I have a lot of doctors actually that listen to this as well. So maybe from a, you know, when should a doctor refer to a, a fertility specialist for, let's just keep it simple and talk about fertility. And when should a patient see a fertility specialist rather than their OBGYN
2: Sure. So I think for both, the general answer is the same. Um, If you read the textbooks, uh, typically it's divided by age. So if the female patient is under the age of 35 and she has been having unprotected intercourse for one year or longer, then it's time to probably refer her out um, and see a specialist. If the woman is over the age of 35, then we typically will cut that timeline in half. So if she's been trying for at least six months, um, then she should. probably be seeing somebody else now interestingly i like to add a few other recommendations so from a provider standpoint if you are a provider like you were saying i don't do any fertility that's fine send them out as soon as you can and the fertility specialist will be more than happy to take them on do all of the counseling do the evaluation um that you know that is our bread and butter and that's what we do every day so so definitely comfortable with that there are some providers that do feel comfortable ordering a baseline evaluation, they'll do an HSG, they'll do a semen analysis, they'll do some hormone testing. As long as you are comfortable ordering and interpreting and managing, then I would say go for it because by the time they get to us, the patients have now been completely worked up. But for most ob that's just not what they do on a day-to-day basis. And so um, if you want to order the workup, I would just say, you know, be in close contact with your REI provider um, in terms of getting that patient in to review results and and interpret kind of what the next step should be yeah Timing is not the only thing that I take into consideration. So, for example, if a pa- I, I mentioned earlier, if a patient is skipping cycles, she has anovulation. Um, you know, the area I used to practice, everyone was was labeled with PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. But there's actually a whole host of reasons why a patient may have irregular cycles, and they need to have a proper evaluation with a complete workup. Um, so that may be something that a fertility specialist could absolutely do. Um, that's what we're. Dedicated to. And then, you know, once we've resolved what the cause of her irregular cycles is, we can then tailor her fertility treatment accordingly the management of endometriosis if there's an underlying known issue so for example the male partner had testicular cancer or had chemo radiation for whatever reason there's a suspicion for male factor if she had a history of you know pelvic infection potentially had to be hospitalized you know we're worried about the fallopian tubes that's somebody you want to send sooner and you don't really want to wait that full year or those 6 months before sending them out
1: yeah you kind of touched on a lot of Causes of infertility. What are the of you mentioned endometriosis, male factor? But what are the top causes of infertility? So you can break it down a few different ways. Um, when you talk about
2: the distribution and the cause, we typically talk about approximately thirty percent female origin, so something, some issue in the female. Thirty percent male origin. both, so we actually have abnormal findings in both partners, and then 20% unexplained infertility, which is actually a term I hate. Um, I much prefer undiagnosed infertility. (laughs) And essentially what that 20% is, is that the testing available today is not finding their underlying reason for infertility. Um, Circling back to the female partner, so if it's that 30 percent that's female alone or 20 percent combined female and male, we're think of if you think of the pelvic structures, that's really where you're going to identify the underlying issues. So, for example, you know, at the level of the uterus, um, does she have fibroids? Does she have polyps? Does she have some sort of structural uterine anomaly that could be impeding or making pregnancy more difficult, potentially increasing her risk for miscarriage like a uterine septum. Um, The fallopian tubes would be the next pelvic structure that we want to assess. The ovaries would be the next pelvic structure. So hormonally, are those ovaries intact? Is she having regular cycles? Are ovulation kits working for her? Or are there alterations? in the egg reserve or in the hormones that are potentially impacting her fertility and then lastly the peritoneum or or the the pelvis itself so endometriosis adhesion scar tissue um, from previous surgeries things like that would be things that we would assess for
1: that's awesome that's really thought that's really uh, thorough a lot of common question i get from patients is Sometimes people haven't even gone that six months or a year or young girls are even maybe still on contraception. And they are they ask, I want to do the tests to make sure I can get pregnant. How do oh, this you, is a great question. Yeah. How do you handle that? Or do you ever get consults for that? Yeah, I do. And and so, I, you know, I'll I'll contextualize my answer
2: by saying if you are anxious about your fertility or if you want to know about your fertility, even though you're not trying to actively conceive, I think that it's absolutely reasonable to have a consultation and to go through, you know, the ex, the thought exercise, the mental exercise of that discussion with your um, fertility provider. That said, um, you know, what most patients are referring to is something called AMH. Um, AMH stands for anti-mullerian hormone. It is a blood test and AMH came onto the scene like circa 2010 ish around there. Um, So it's been around for over a decade now. And when it was the new kid on the block, we thought it was going to be the end all be all because we could check it at any time in the cycle. We could check it if the patient was on birth control, we could check it if she was on any other form of hormone suppression. So it was sort of this one stop shop to give us an assessment of egg reserve. However, um, now that we know more about AMH, we know a little bit more about qualifying that result. And so let me just expand on that a bit. So AMH is a great tool that fertility providers use to check a patient's egg reserve. So it is a marker of egg quantity. However, it is not a marker of egg quality. So for example, um, I have had patients come into my office and they're maybe over the age of 40. And, oh, my, you know, my provider told me that I have the eggs of a 25-year-old. Well, Remember, AMH is a reflection of quantity, not quality. Egg quality is going to be directly correlated to the female patient's age, and that is going to be a separate point of discussion. The other thing that we now know is that AMH can absolutely be impacted by long-term contraceptive use. So for example, if a patient has been on birth control for 5, 10 years um, or longer, she may check an AMH and she may get scared um, that the AMH is super-duper low. It's really nothing to be concerned about. Typically, what we will do in those scenarios is we will do a pill holiday. We'll have the patient come off of the birth control pill for four to six weeks. And then once the body has had sort of a little bit of time off of the pill, we'll recheck that hormone. Um, Most times, if we have to do that, we will add in other markers like a vaginal ultrasound looking at the ovaries and the follicle count, as well as maybe baseline reproductive hormones, FSH or follicle stimulating hormone, as well as estradiol levels um, to get a more complete assessment of what the actual egg reserve or egg quantity is. So I do think it's reasonable for patients who are concerned or who are anxious about it to have a conversation and to try and understand what ovarian aging actually means and what AMH testing actually means. And so then if they do get decide to get tested, they're interpreting that result Properly. So, you know, there's the, the risk of false reassurance and also the risk of a false scare if they're not counseled properly as to how to interpret that result.
1: Yeah, that's definitely. Uh, out of my wheelhouse. So that would be a uh, conversation. And absolutely, you know, I would say
2: preconception counseling or, you know, fertility preservation counseling is definitely something that we do. And that would absolutely be a conversation for a fertility specialist to have with any patient who is anxious about their fertility to then determine whether or not testing is indicated. One last thing I'll just mention that I think is really important for patients to know is that all of the data data on AMH is related to egg quantity or ovarian reserve within the scope of fertility treatment. AMH actually does not predict a patient's ability to get pregnant on her own. So the likelihood of a spontaneous pregnancy is not correlated hmm. with that AMH value.
1: Interesting. Is there anything you can do to you mentioned preserve your fertility? Is there anything you can do? Or a common question we get is is this, are, are these contraceptives that I'm using going to interfere with my fertility? So two part that, question. That's another, yeah, another great question. Okay,
2: so I'll start with the second one first, actually, because that's super common. And as a fertility doc, I get that all the time. I'm sure you guys get it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I want, you know, it's a lot about education. So the goal of the birth control pill is to suppress ovulation, The goal of the birth control pill is not to suppress the egg reserve itself. So when a patient comes off of the birth control, her return to her baseline fertility is immediate the reason you have to take it every day is because it has a daily half-life so if you come off of the pill then obviously you're going to return to your baseline fertility now here's the issue let's say you were 14 or 15 you were having irregular cycles if you were started on the birth control for irregular cycles then your baseline fertility may be irregular cycles so coming off of the birth control 10 years later your return to baseline may be that you don't get a normal period that's not a consequence of the the birth control that's a consequence of the base of your baseline fertility Okay, Mm -hmm. so I will, you know, black and white, 100 percent, all the data that's out there, all the data that we have um, available to us, both in the general OBGYN literature, as well as in the infertility literature and just in my decade, you know, between training and practice, um, I will say there is zero suggestion that the birth control pill affects future fertility. So hopefully that was clear enough (laughs) for the listeners (laughs) Um, The now the first question you answered. Um, And I think this is really interesting as it relates to um, the birth control pill and fertility. Can you just remind me a little bit kind of where you are going with that in terms of treatment?
1: Yeah, I think a question is, is there anything I can do to make sure I don't have issues with getting pregnant? So I'm 18 now. I, you know, I, i we'll just give you my daughter. She's about to go to college. She thinks she wants to go to medical school, doesn't want to have a baby until kind of in her thirties. So is there anything you can do to kind of optimize it, your chance that you're not going to have issues with fertility?
2: Yeah. So, so I think that, It's a complex answer um, or not not complex. It's a multi part answer. And the first thing is I always want to make sure that patients understand the natural ovarian aging process. So as women, we are born with all the eggs we're going to have in our lifetime and we lose those eggs progressively and continually as we age. And typically what we see is that the number of eggs and the quality of those eggs remains fairly stable. There is some decline, but it's fairly stable until about age 35. And then after age 35, we begin to see a slow, but real decline in the number and quality of eggs. And then after age 40, that decline becomes much more dramatic. So year over year, the loss in the number of eggs and the quality of those eggs is much more significant. Unfortunately, with today's science, there is nothing that we can do as providers to reverse that ovarian aging process. So that needs to be very clear. There's some bench research out there, but, you know, what is considered standard of care today? There is nothing that we have available that is that is allowing us to reverse the ovarian aging process. Okay, so that's the first part of the of the answer. The second part is. Yes, there are certain lifestyle things that are absolutely going to impact fertility. So we know that, you know, chronic exposure to tobacco, chronic exposure to alcohol, um, chronic exposure to recreational drug use, all of those things can potentially impact future fertility. There's actually some interesting data just while we're, we're mentioning lifestyle things, interesting data on hairdressers who work in a salon and their exposure to all the chemicals from the salon, um, they tend to see higher rates of infertility in their reproductive years. Um, night shift workers, similar uh, similar findings, um, et cetera, et cetera. So anecdotally in my, in my work, I see on the male side, for example, my truck drivers, my firefighters. So there's definitely some, some chronic exposures to environmental toxins that can absolutely increase the risk for future fertility. And so from a lifestyle standpoint, there are measure proactive measures that patients can take to optimize their natural ovarian aging process or or to at least not accelerate it so hopefully that's clear now the third piece to the answer is fertility preservation and again right around 2012 ish Um, there was a big change in the IVF laboratory. And what happened in the IVF laboratory is that the freezing technique went from slow freezing to fast freeze, something we call vitrification. That's a technical term. And what we found is that with vitrification, the eggs survived the freeze and unfreeze process significantly better than when than when we were using slow freezing. So now egg freezing as of 2012 was no longer considered experimental and had now become standard of care within the infertility world so this was now an option freezing eggs to use in the future was now an option that pre 2012 had not been available to patients
1: Hmm. what's the process
2: for that yeah so basically the way that that works is in a natural cycle every woman has a cohort of eggs, I call them potential recruits, that are sitting there in the ovaries waiting to be recruited by our brain hormones. And of all of those recruits in a natural cycle, one is selected out to go on to ovulate, the others undergo a process called atresia, they basically just die off and reabsorb. So with the fertility preservation or egg freezing process, as with IVF, it's actually a similar uh, process, We are giving external medications to try and recruit as many of those eggs as possible for that particular month. So we're so instead of just recruiting the one dominant follicle and losing everybody else, we're trying to rescue those other ones that we would have lost. And we stimulate them to grow so that we can then extract them. So typically the procedure involves eight to 10 days of stimulation with the hormones. The hormones are very tiny injections. They're uh, needles that go just underneath the skin. There's a lot of teaching that goes into it. Um, During those eight to 10 days, we're typically doing vaginal ultrasounds and blood work for monitoring of the patient's response, adjusting the medication accordingly. And then at the end of those eight to 10 days, once the um, ovaries are ready, we then plan for the egg retrieval or egg extraction procedure. That procedure is typically done in a procedure room um, some clinics may be affiliated with a the hospital. They may do it in a hospital. Most clinics have their own procedure area. Um, we typically do it with a little bit of anesthesia. Uh, the technical term is conscious sedation. So it's not general anesthesia. You're <clears throat> you're not intubated. You're still breathing on your own, but we do it vaginally. We we use ultrasound guidance and we insert a needle through the vaginal walls to reach the ovaries. If the ovaries have responded well to the medication, they can typically grow from the size of a golf ball to the size of a grapefruit. So they're significantly enlarged, very easily accessible through the vagina. And using a very tiny needle, we suction out all of those follicles, hopefully retreating eggs from every follicle. Um, and we do that for both ovaries. And then those tubes of fluid are given to the IVF lab. So typically the procedure room is connected to the IVF laboratory. And our um, amazing embryologists, because I say that's really where the magic happens, they are the ones that identify the eggs, identify the mature eggs, and then ultimately go on to freeze them. Um, So for the patient going through an egg freezing process, it's about a two-week procedure. So about 8 to 10 days of of medication with monitoring vaginal ultrasounds and blood work. And then the last step would be that egg retrieval or egg extraction procedure. Hmm.
1: And then when are people typically in your practice – using those frozen eggs.
2: So that's actually a great question. Um, A a little bit of that is still TBD because it's relatively new. Um, We are still trying to identify what percentage of patients comes back to use them. But I would say in my practice, we see probably about a third of patients come back to use them. The way that I counsel patients about egg freezing is to think of it as an insurance policy. So the hope is that you never have to use them. The hope is that when you do meet your partner and you are ready to conceive, that you're able to do so naturally, but that in the event that that is going to happen later in life, when the egg quantity and egg quality is lower, then you have these eggs as sort of a backup, if you will. Um, And and so really the goal is to hopefully not need to use them, but I would say about a third of patients that I see come back to
1: use their eggs. What age are most people considering egg freezing and what what age are they and is is it too late ever? Of uh, okay, I'm 49 now. I've never. Is it? Sure. So so there's there's basically, um, and again, these are awesome
2: questions and with multi part answers. So hopefully I'm not I'm not getting too into the weeds here. Um, for egg freezing, the ideal patient based on available literature is someone under the age of 35. And the reason for that is because the egg quantity and the egg quality is going to be at its prime right, at its peak. Now, really, that can mean anyone from menarche, so someone who's undergone through puberty all the way to the age of 35. What I have found in my clinical practice is that most patients that come to seek counseling about egg freezing typically um, if they do not have an underlying medical condition are typically in the range of 30 to 35. And my my best guess as to why that is the age range is because number one, they're old enough to really know if they want a family in the future, Um, they're old enough to know about the procedure, about this option, and they probably also are financially able to afford it. Remember, this is not something that's covered Mm -hmm. by insurance and is quite costly. So those are kind of the, the majority of patients that I would say that I see. However, we absolutely do do egg freezing in younger patients, especially if there's some sort of trigger. Um, let's say the patient has been recently diagnosed, God forbid, with some sort of cancer and they want to preserve their fertility before going through chemo or radiation. That would be a very common reason to see a younger patient for egg freezing. Um, if the patient has a, you know, a chronic illness that we believe might affect future fertility or severe endometriosis that has been diagnosed at a young age that could affect future fertility. Those may all be reasons why a younger patient may want to go through egg freezing. Now, all of that said, Older patients are still absolutely candidates for egg freezing, so they are not excluded from this procedure. However, the counseling is going to be a little bit different. So when I have a patient who's over the age of 35 walk into my office to discuss egg freezing, I tell them, my recommendation to you is always going to be to get pregnant first if you have a partner to consider pregnancy with that partner, if you don't have a partner to consider pregnancy as a single person using sperm donation, and only in the setting where you say to me, look, Dr. Swaldo, for reasons A, B, and C, pregnancy right now is just not an option for me, then I would absolutely counsel about egg freezing, but I would make sure that the patient understands that that is a second line therapy or an alternative treatment option to becoming pregnant. And the reason for that is because of the decrease in the quantity of the eggs, the quality of the eggs, we know that the likelihood of success in the future is going to be lower. And so we wanna make sure that they're counseled properly and that their expectations are realistic going into that egg freezing procedure. Hmm. As far as when to not do egg freezing, I mean, I I think, you know, somewhere in the between the ages of 40 to 43, we are starting to strongly discourage patients from egg freezing. And the reason for that is because the likelihood of success with those eggs in the future tends to be extremely low. So so basically the idea is that. Um, over the age of 40, we know that the number of eggs significantly declines, and we know that the quality of the eggs dramatically declines. And to do egg freezing, you really want to be working with a large cohort of eggs if possible. And so those patients either tend to do sev- will need to do several rounds um, or they will end up with a number of eggs that will give them a very low chance of pregnancy. Excuse me, in the future. So hopefully that makes sense. As yeah. far as fertility treatment in general, um, I, you know, every clinic is a little bit different. There's not really a cutoff as to when we will decline fertility treatment in black and white. Um, there's been no strict guidelines by the society. However, most clinics will put that mark somewhere in the 51 to 52, 53 range. And that comes from some data out of USC um, with Dr. Richard Paulson showing that the maternal mortality increased significantly after age 52.
1: Hmm. What are, so we talked about egg freezing. Um, what are some of the common treatments that you do for patients that have issues with infertility? Sure. So I
2: basically divide them into four big groups. Um, One we touched on a little bit earlier, and that is reproductive surgery. So if a patient has some sort of structural or underlying issue, surgery may be indicated. There is absolutely still a role, although I would say surgery is less and less prominent within, um, within the treatment options today than it was maybe in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then as far as medical treatments, medical treatments basically get divided into three groups. And depending on each patient's case, the treatment really needs to be individualized. So the first option is timed intercourse, and that can be with oral medication um, that is typically for the female patient who has an ovulation or irregular cycles. And so we're essentially and she's young. And so we're essentially trying to correct her ovulatory dysfunction. We're trying to get her to ovulate regularly and with that allow for timed intercourse at home. The second option would be IUI or artificial insemination. IUI stands for intrauterine insemination. It's basically like a pap smear visit for the patient in terms of what they feel. Um, The goal is to insert a small catheter into the uterus and deposit sperm inside the uterus. This increases the amount of sperm that reaches um, the egg for that particular month. and That can be done um, in a natural cycle or it can be done in a medicated cycle using either oral medications uh, such as Clomid or Letrozole. Uh, The commercial names for those are clomiphene, excuse me, clomid is the commercial name, clomiphene citrate is the generic, um, and then for letrozole, the commercial name is Femara. Um, Or, so if it's not oral medication, we could also use injectable or, or recombinant gonadotropin medication. And then the third option is IVF, and IVF deserves kind of a talk in and of itself, but broadly speaking, IVF or in vitro fertilization is where we take eggs from the female patient, We combine it with sperm from the male source and then we create embryos. Those embryos can then be put back into the female patient untested, or they can undergo genetic testing and then be put back into the female patient post genetic testing. Additional options within the IVF world, and this is beyond the scope of today's talk, but I just wanna make sure patients are aware because I think a lot of times they don't know about these options. One is egg donation. So, using the the egg of somebody else, embryo donation. so that is an egg and sperm source coming from somebody else, so that that they've decided to donate their embryos to a different to another couple. And then um, obviously, traditional adoption um, and surrogacy. I want to make sure that patients understand that surrogacy um, is a very common term thrown around. And while surrogacy is a great option when indicated, it is mainly indicated when there is a uterine issue or when the female patient has some sort of condition that would not allow her to have a safe pregnancy so a lot of times patients think surrogacy is kind of this uh, cure-all and and that's really not the case there's actually very specific indications for the use of a gestational surrogate
1: Hmm. super helpful you mentioned that a lot of these services are not covered by insurance and i would imagine prices in California would I would imagine prices in California are going to be different than Ohio but in general what can somebody expect to that is an out of pocket expense for fertility treatments Sure. Um, and this was something that I th- this
2: was the part of medicine that they don't teach you in school, <laughs> which is really interesting for me. That was a, a big learning curve. Um, the first thing I just want to mention is that um, infertility treatment is not federally mandated in terms of insurance coverage, it is left to the states to determine or define infertility treatment coverage. So for example, um, the University of Connecticut where I did my fellowship. So Connecticut is a mandate state. Um, At the time when I did my training there, patients had, most patients had three IUIs and two IVFs covered at 100% medications, wow. everything. Yes. I've never state heard of, Massachusetts, of that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Massachusetts, up to six IVFs covered at 100% by the state mandate. Wow. So every state is very different. There are only very few states in the country, either six or seven, um, that have a mandate at the state level for requiring insurances to cover infertility treatment. So here in California, we are what's called a mandate to offer, but not a mandate to cover. And so patients, by and large, unless the plan is through their employer, um, so for example, companies like Starbucks, Apple, Google, um, there's a few others I can think of. So their their insurance plans include infertility treatment in their plan. But for the vast majority of patients still, um, infertility treatment is not covered by their carrier. So for those patients, generally speaking, and and there's going to be a broad range here, so it really depends on your geographic location and on your uh, fertility clinic itself. But I would say that generally speaking, IUI can range anywhere from know 500 600 all the way up to two three four thousand dollars so there is a broad range depending on the medications used how much monitoring the clinic etc etc and the geographic location um and then ivf or in vitro fertilization it can range anywhere from 15 to 25 30 or higher uh, thousand dollars depending on again geographic location what is being done so is there, you know, genetic testing being incorporated? Are we using a donor egg, etc.? cetera? Um, so all of those things are going to factor into cost. But it is a significantly costly procedure. Mm-hmm. And it is a conversation that has to be had with the patient. For So, for example, here in California or in Florida, where I used to practice, um, You know, whether it's with the provider or with a a financial person within the clinic, that is something that patients need to have a very clear understanding of before they jump in, because that unfortunately does factor into the treatment decision process for them. Sure, it's
1: complicated. So on that note, somebody might hear this and say, oh, like, well, is there anything I can do like DIY of I see these fertility kits at home or ovulation predictor kits or male supplements, if you can comment on those over the counter kind of
2: Sure, sure. So the first thing I would encourage is definitely having a discussion with the provider, because I think there are, you know, there's a discussion that needs to be had there and counseling that needs to be had there. As far as optimizing natural fertility, I typically break that down into three components. Um, And so one is the menstrual cycle, having a clear understanding of your menstrual pattern. um, What is your cycle? to your next first day of full flow if you're tracking your period calendar now you know with some of the privacy concerns with the apps but understanding what your cycle length is because that is going to allow you to really hone in on when you are most likely to be ovulating. And testing with an ovulation predictor kit, they are typically found over the counter in the feminine hygiene aisle. You don't need anything super fancy. It just needs to be something that works for you and that gives you a clear yes or no and is not going to be confusing. Um, And then as far as timing intercourse, you want to make sure that you're having intercourse the day of the positive predictor kit and the day after. Now, let's say you're someone who has a 28-day cycle one month you have a 50-day cycle the next month you have a 14-day cycle the next month well guess what your cycles are not regular you need to see your provider because you're not ovulating regularly or there's another reason why you're bleeding and that needs to be addressed prior to pregnancy so um, I think the menstrual tracking in terms of a calendar or an app understanding cycle length that would allow you to to time intercourse um, more effectively And the other thing I'll just mention is, you know, when patients are trying to conceive and and this is a whole discussion in and of itself, intercourse can become very mechanical. It can become, you know, medicalized. And so allowing you to do the ovulation predictor kit and knowing that intercourse, the day of the positive and the day after is specifically for baby making, if you will, and then the rest of the month can be really for intimacy and connection I think takes a little bit of stress off the couple as well in those months. Yeah. So I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: Oh, I love that you um, brought that up because it leads me to my next question is, you know, hopefully people have found this podcast informative and interesting, but you know, I would imagine for some people it might be a little stressful. And so the fact that you commented on that is great, but I'll ask you this one last question and then I'll let you get back to work is, you know, if this is a s- stressful or just life is stressful, people ask me like, I'm just so stressed, is that affecting my fertility? That's a great
2: question. So Unfortunately, the data is just not there when it comes to stress. I mean, listen, we just went through two years of pandemic. I mean, we're all stressed out, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, we're all overwhelmed. We're all burned out. I mean, I, would, I, I can't imagine that we won't see higher rates of infertility after all of this. However, That said, the data is just not there. So in terms of mental, emotional, psychological stress, um, we don't have a clear picture of the way that that impacts fertility. We do know that chronic stress on the body, so for example, patients who have autoimmune conditions such as lupus or patients who have had multiple surgeries for X reason or whatnot, we do tend to see higher rates of infertility in those patients, and we believe it's probably due to to a chronic inflammatory response that the body has to those conditions. Um, but in terms of just, you know, life stressors or whatnot, there's just not clear data on that. I will just add, however, to your point that going through infertility and going through infertility treatment is extremely stressful. That has been documented. That has been well studied. And so for those patients, I would just say acknowledging that is step one. And then getting out in front of it is step two. So what are you going to do for stress management proactively during your trying to conceive journey?
1: Yeah, great points. Where can people find you?
2: Yeah, so I am on all the the social media channels so they can find me on Instagram and Facebook, um Dr. Carolina Sweldo, um Carolina's like North and South Carolina. And I am also on YouTube with the same name. So Dr. Carolina Sweldo, I have a YouTube channel. Um it's brand new, it's my baby and I'll be releasing episodes there every Monday. Um, on my social media channels, I also um, have people signing up for a monthly free webinar with me. Um, they're basically one hour Q&A sessions to have access to a fertility provider and get those questions answered. So um, they can go to my link and profile on, on Instagram and sign up for that if they're interested.
1: Wow. What a great resource. Thank you so much for joining us. This was super helpful. I learned a lot. Um Especially about the AMH. I didn't know that. So, <laughs> <laughs>
2: Awesome. Awesome, Dr. Brenner. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, I, I really enjoyed being here. I hope it was helpful to your audience. And I look forward to collaborating again in the future.
1: Sounds great.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Her. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and the web. Go to www.dramiebrenner.com to learn more. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute as medical advice, the practice of medicine, nursing or other healthcare services. No patient-physician relationship is formed. The information in the podcast and any references, material or links